This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. In 2008, a man named Bob Buford wrote an important book that affected and impacted many, many hundreds of thousands of Americans, if not millions. The book was called Halftime. And it turns out Bob had been a very, very prosperous cable executive and had built a mini empire, but something was missing in his life. And he wrote a book about moving from success to significance in your life, having a switch, a paradigm switch. And that significance part is what really, well, it animated so many people in this country to move towards that phase of living. And with that in mind... Our own Monty Montgomery brings us just such a halftime story. Mauricio Ferraza grew up in the countryside of Brazil. Literally in a small farm. So I grew up with animals and fruits. I remember until I was 15 years old, I had never seen money in my life. It was the kind of town that you would go to the bakery and they know who your parents are. So you get a little treat and you eat and you go to the paper store and you buy your crayons, but they would just give it to me. And I would just, (laughs) that's how I grew up. After graduating college, Mauricio found his way to Miami, where he saw something that would change his life. At the time, it was in the early 1990s, and Toy Story was released, and I absolutely fell in love with Toy Story. I was just mesmerized when I watched it, and I was like, I gotta do that. I've loved animation all my life. I still watch animation, I still watch Chuck Jones, I still watch the Looney Tunes. So I went back to school, and I got my master's in animation, and that's when Univision Communications, they hired me before I graduated, and I was there for 15 years. Um, uh, Univision, they were pretty generous with me and I had a very good job. It was a corporate job. At the time, they had the rights for the World Cup, Latin Grammys. Uh, I broadcasted the World Cup to the United States from Germany, from South Africa and from Brazil. I was with celebrities in LA and I traveled, uh, I traveled to Shakira to Germany and we became friends because she was the official singer of the German World Cup. Uh, the same thing in, in Brazil with other Brazilian singers. I mean, it was a, a, an amazing ride that I, I don't regret. I mean, I, I love it. When you're young, you want, you, you want a bright lights and you want to go after the fame and you want, and you want to be relevant as a person and you want to make money, and you want to be in the VIP parties. But after 10 years, it got to the point where it wasn't challenging me anymore. I mean, my life was getting predictable. My life was getting to the point where I had literally no more challenges. When you, when you work with a network and when we work with a target audience, you're very, very limited in what you can do creatively because it's not even your boss or your president or the CEO that is telling you that you have to do everything red and green. It's the audience, they're the bosses, you know, they're the ones consuming your product. You're, you're boxed in that, that kind of world and nothing wrong with it, but I like to be challenged. 
but I never really left animation. At the same time, I was putting together an animation conference here in Miami. Miami Dade College's president invited me to bring the conference to the college to write two programs, one animation and another one in game development, Build Magic. Magic was Mauricio's idea for a college program in video game and animation design that would cater to students who typically weren't catered to at all. And I did, in nine months. And then we launched in 2015 the Miami Animation and Game International Complex. So we started with 80 students, and today we have close to 700 students. Every single other animation program in our country costs $150,000, $200,000, $90,000. It really narrows the kind of student or who can actually attend and learn these technologies to tell a story through these mediums. This program democratized animation to all. The full program is cost $2,000, and most of our students, they qualify for financial aid. And believe it or not, a lot of them do not have $2,500. 57% of our students come from below poverty level, and uh, this program is the first program in the country that actually offers and teaches animation and video game development to whoever would like to learn. And help them find jobs in an industry of over 300,000 positions, with a projected increase of over 7,000 more of them in the coming years, helping kids who Mauricio says have life happen to them a lot. We really want to provide and give an opportunity to every single student in Miami-Dade County or in the country to have an opportunity to learn these technologies and how to tell a story, how to create a video game. There's one favorite story of one student that arrived here and he was always wearing a hoodie and he wouldn't talk to anybody. He was uh, just you know, left alone and doing his drawings. And I found out that he came from an FFF high school. I didn't know what that was. In Florida's school ranking system, the lowest rating possible. And then one of the faculty noticed him, his drawings was amazing, and then little by little, his confidence was being built and he was feeling more comfortable, sharing who he was, making friends, ended up the Fox animation picked up his story and is producing one of his short animated movies and maybe it will become a animated TV series. And it's about his life, it's about the ghetto, it's about living, but in a very humorous way. And magic hasn't only changed the lives of its students, it's changed the life of Mauricio as well. When Dr. Padron invited me to put together all this together and build it, I thought deep in my selfish being that I was gonna have a studio for myself. And that, oh my God, now I'm gonna be able to tell my stories and I'm gonna be able to produce everything that I like. But I have time, you know, the students are gonna be secondary. And then when I first started to get to know them and their stories, uh, today I work 100% of my time for them. And I still haven't told one of my stories. And a special thanks to our friends at the Mortgage Family Foundation for bringing us this story, Mauricio Ferraz's story, a halftime story here on Our American Story.
This is Our American Stories, and now it's time for our Ditch Digger CEO series with Gary Rabine. Gary is the founder and president of perhaps the best paving company in the country. As an entrepreneur, he's met many incredible businessmen and women throughout his life. And in this series, Gary brings us their stories. And today's story begins in Saigon, Vietnam. I was born in 1973 in Saigon, Vietnam. I was very fortunate. My mother worked for the U.S. Naval Attaché. My father was a South Vietnamese Army officer. And in the spring of 1975, we left Saigon in a big hurry, because that's what you do when communist forces are taking over your home country. That's France Hong, an American entrepreneur who's helped start a number of successful businesses. But before he got there, here is where his story begins. One day, a U.S. official came to my mom and said, look, we think that it's best that your family leave the country, and we think it's best that you do that as soon as possible. And that was part of a glorious and kind of forgotten chapter of American history called Operation Frequent Wind, when the United States government decided to evacuate over 130,000 Vietnamese for, um, allies of, and friends of, of the United States, to the United States, rather than leave them behind. And my family was one of those fortunate families that was evacuated as part of that. They really should make a movie out of it. Operation Frequent Wind. I mean, some incredible stories. The United States took people out by plane, including my family. They sent ships out to sea. Uh, Vietnamese were loading up their families into helicopters and planes and just taking off east, not knowing if there's anything out there. Can you imagine, right, putting your entire family into a plane and just piloting it out to sea in the hopes that something's there? And there was. American ships sent by, sent by our government to receive those folks. And one of my favorite pictures from that time is a picture of U.S. Navy sailors pushing Huey helicopters over the side of ships to make room. This multi-million dollar helicopter is not as important as, as a human life. So my family went from, from Saigon. We flew out on a C-141 Starlifter, courtesy of the U.S. Air Force, and came to Guam, where a, a resettlement camp was being set up. We processed there. And then from there, flew to Camp Pendleton, California, uh, which was the first of four different resettlement camps set up for the Vietnamese refugees coming into the United States. And it was there that uh, the story becomes interesting. Governor Brown, the then governor of California, didn't want the Vietnamese refugees to stay in his state. In fact, he sent folks out to actually stop the planes from landing. Governor Evans of Washington state heard of this and says, well, what's up with this? So he sends his aide, Ralph Monroe, down to these camps at Camp Pendleton, where my family is. And, and Ralph reports back to the governor, like, these are a bunch of, you know, people who are trying to make a new life for themselves. And uh, Governor Irwin says, you know what, we should do something to help them. And so he said a call out that says, look, if anybody wants to come to Washington State, we'd welcome you. And so my family was one of those that answered the call and uh, ended up settling in a small town in Washington State called Tumwater, Washington. And I grew up in a, in a small town, America. I was 18 months old at the time. This is all stuff I learned after the fact. But it was learning about that actually that inspired me to want to serve. Growing up, you know, learning about my family's history, I really began to feel like I, I had a debt that needed to be repaid, you know, a debt to the country for giving me and my family these wonderful opportunities, to the military for having brought us out of, of the country and rescuing us. And so I thought, what better way to repay that debt than by serving this very same country? And, you know, that led me in my my senior, you know, junior and senior year applying to and receiving an appointment to the United States Military Academy at West Point. There's a saying about West Point, it's a, it's a great place to be from, it's not always a great place to be, 
Uh, West Point is a remote place. And when you're a cadet there, it becomes your world, right? And and that's that's good in the sense that you get a, you know, you get to focus really strongly on the things that you should be doing, which is preparing yourself to be, you know, a, a leader of character for the nation um, and to serve as a junior officer in the United States Army. It can be tough, right? Because, you know, your friends and family are far away and, you know, you hear tales about what your high school friends are doing at their civilian universities and you're like, wow, you know, yesterday I had an inspection and I got yelled at because my toothbrush was in the wrong place. I still remember one time walking into the, the cadet library and there's a case there and it contains rings from past classes. West Point, by the way, was the very first college to have class rings. It started the tradition of class rings. And this this ring case has rings from every class dating all the way back to the founding of West Point in 1802. And then you look in the ring case, as I was doing, and you notice that many of the rings are actually in really bad shape. They're they're busted up. They're missing their stones. They look like they've had some rough times. And you're like, well, that's kind of odd. And then you read underneath each ring, and it's got a name and a date of birth and a date of death. Mm-hmm. And you realize that most of those rings in those case had been uh, donated to the academy after their wearers had been killed in combat. And to walk in and be realized, like, that's part of the tradition you become a -hmm. part of when you become a cadet at West Point, right? Duty, honor, country. You know, our graduates go on and serve. You you live those values and you you live them, you know, perhaps, you know, to the day that you make the ultimate sacrifice. I ended up going to U.S. Army Ranger School. It was great in the sense that I got through it and I got my Ranger tab. Now an Army Ranger, France deployed to Bosnia as a peacekeeper following the breakup of Yugoslavia after the Cold War. He continued to rise as a leader as he became the deputy chief of police and SWAT team commander at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas. After his five-year service requirement, France was ready to enter the civilian world, but not ready to stop serving. He studied law and became the deputy White House counsel under George W. Bush. But after two years working in one of the top legal positions in America, France had a niche to see more action once again. This goes back to the theme of having a poorly developed sense of self-preservation. Um, <laughs> I, I joined a special forces unit that was mobilizing to deploy to Afghanistan um, and served wow. as the company executive officer on a deployment to southeast Afghanistan from 2009 to 2010. During that time frame, uh, we spent our first six weeks searching for Private Bergdahl when he walked off an army installation. One of our installations was also uh, the scene of the suicide bomber attack that was mm. featured in Zero Dark Thirty. You know, it's classic special operations missions, right? You know, foreign internal defense, you know, village medical operations, all the things that um, special operations soldiers do to enable their partners to succeed and build capacity. But it was a very, very eye-opening. You know, I was on the ground for seven months. It was very eye-opening in the sense that, you know, it had been nine years since I put on a uniform. You know, I went from picking out neckties for work to picking out hand grenades on patrol. So it was a a bit of a contrast. (laughs) When I was in Afghanistan, I got an email from Joe Fluitt, who I'd worked with at Williams Connolly, the law firm, uh, several years prior. Uh, Joe himself had deployed to Afghanistan in 2005 with the charge to stand up the Afghan Air Force. And so he had gone over and from scratch rented helicopters and recruited pilots and and stood up the special operations aviation wing for the Afghans. And so 
when I was in my closing days of my time in Afghanistan, he sent me an email says, look, France, I've started two companies, uh, uh, an aerospace company and a law firm. And if you were here, I'd twist your arm and, you know, make you join right away. But you're off doing great and wonderful things for our country. But be prepared for some arm twisting when you get back. I came back and Joe was like, hey, you know, here's the pitch. Here's the here's the companies I want you to join. And I said, no. Uh, and I said, Joe, look, I got I have this whole career path ahead of me as a lawyer. Um, this sounds really risky. I'm not sure if I want to do it. Um, and then I remember walking around downtown D.C. thinking to myself, why did I say no? And I just kept thinking about it. And then I applied something I've talked about before, which is the rocking chair test. When you're 98 years old and you're sitting in a rocking chair mm-hmm. um, on your patio, thinking back on your life, you know, what are the things that you're going to regret not having done? And so the goal is to live life in such a way that there's the fewest number of items that you're going to regret having passed by when you're in that rocking chair at 98. And so I realized to myself that, oh, this, this falls into that. Like, I'm going to regret not having done this. So I called Joe back up and said, look, let's, let's have a, another conversation. I might have been too hasty. And thought to myself, gosh, I just spent the last year putting myself in, in harm's way. I was almost killed by a rocket, hand grenades, and a wheelbarrow. Um, you know, what's a little bit of financial and, and career risk at this point? And so that's, that was the start of my life as an entrepreneur. And you've been listening to France Hong. And what a story indeed. And this is a part of our Ditch Digger CEO series with Gary Rabine. And my goodness, this is a part of the Vietnam story we don't get to hear very often. And I'm so glad we're hearing it. And even though this is an entrepreneur series, and it's a series about risk-taking, my goodness, the risks that these men took long before, long before entering into the world of business guys who've laid their life on the line for the country. Well, they know a lot about risk and reward. When we come back, more of the life of France home here on Our American Story. back with our American stories and our Ditch Digger CEO series with Gary Rabine. We left off with Franz Hong returning from his second tour in the military and deciding to take the risk of becoming an entrepreneur. Let's get back to his story. When I became an entrepreneur, I became an entrepreneur in two companies simultaneously. So I became a partner in the law firm of FH and H and, you know, took on the responsibility for branding, marketing, and kind of the growth strategy of the law firm. And then became um, part of the executive team and, uh, like I said, part of the founding team of MAG Aerospace and initially focused on branding, marketing, strategy, and all the legal work. MAG is a government services company that focuses on providing aerial surveillance work. So it operates planes, drones, and helicopters all around the world as a service 
to various customers, mostly the U.S. government, but there are also commercial customers and other friendly foreign governments. Shortly after I joined, the law firm lost its largest single client. Within short order, we were the owners were writing checks to make payroll, and I think to myself, well, this is kind of backwards. I became an entrepreneur to make money, and instead <laughs> I'm now putting money into into the company. Mag, likewise, lost one of its biggest customers, but then within a couple of years had had recovered, but we really didn't have our breakout opportunity. We were, we wanted to be an aviation company, uh, but these, you know, aviation contracts are big, they're complex, they require a lot of capital. We had the opportunity to get onto an existing contract by purchasing three aircraft on the contract. It would take several million dollars to purchase those aircraft and nobody would loan us the money and nobody would invest in, in MAG. And so what the founding team did was we emptied out everything we had, 401ks, some of us took out second mortgages, maxed out credit cards. I think there are a few wives that were not told about empty 401k accounts. Oh, um, I mean, like it was like that scene in a poker game, right? Like all in. And we, we bought the aircraft. And the real rub was one of the reasons we could buy the aircraft was because the contract they were on was about to be canceled. And so not only were we all in, we had to be all in and then convince the customer not to cancel this contract right. that, that was making money, right, with the aircraft. Otherwise, you know, we would own three very, very expensive paperweights instead of having <laughs> life savings. But good news story. We turned around the contract. The customer was very happy. And that was our very first uh, aviation contract. It was the start of a phenomenal growth by MAG Aerospace. And eight years later, you know, MAG is doing over... 300 million in revenue, uh, employs over 1,300 employees on every populated continent, and currently operates over 200 uh, planes, helicopters, and drones all around the world. Part of being a successful entrepreneur is having that idea that you're so in love with, you're so passionate about, that you want to be all in. And I, I would dare say that you shouldn't be an entrepreneur unless you have that. If you don't love your product or service, if you don't feel like it's going to change the world or it's something that's so meaningful to you that you don't have a choice, right? Like you, you want to create this company so badly, it's not even an option for you. Like this isn't, you know, it's like being in love, right? Like you either know, either you are or you aren't. If you have to ask the question, the answer is no. If you, if you want to know if you have the right idea to be an entrepreneur, you, you know, because it's something that you're just you want to be all in. In fact, not only you want, you need to be all in, you believe in it so much. The unofficial, and I think later official of mo motto of MAG was perform or be replaced, um, which, which sounds harsh. And if you talk to Joe Fluid, he, he can give you a whole um, talk about this. But, you know, we try to recruit the people that, you know, if you take 10 people in, in a company, you know, in many cases, five people are not pulling their weight you know, right, three people are, are doing okay, and there's one or two rock stars, right? And they often make up for everybody else. And our, we tried to recruit those one or two, and part of our pitch to them was, imagine being in a company where instead of pulling everybody's weight, right, you were struggling to keep up because everyone else was such a rock star as well. Can you imagine being in that environment? And so we brought in people that liked that, that, that wanted that kind of high-performance culture. Um, and then we... We enforced it, or we, we held people's feet to the fire. We, we, we promoted people on the basis of meritocracy, not on the basis of relationship. 
And then we created um, a brand and marketed that brand based around this idea of kind of high performance. The law firm is uh, also doing well. We're up to, I think, 30 lawyers now based in Tysons, Virginia, growing, thriving practice over, you know, 1,000 clients and continues to, to, to grow and prosper. So it's interesting. When I became an entrepreneur, at first I thought I was taking a break from service, right? In the sense that like before that I'd been in, served in uniform, served a country in uniform. I'd, you know, continue serving as a lawyer by, you know, being an appointee and in a white house. And I said, okay, it's time to go make money, right? This is a break yeah. from service. And what I discovered was that great entrepreneurs are also driven by desire to serve, right? They, they have, like I talked about earlier, this desire to serve by making a difference in the world through a product or service that they're passionate about, they believe in. And so I've now come to view that I've only had one career, which is a career of service, <laughs> you know, and I've been able to do those careers through multiple iterations as a as uh, a soldier, as a lawyer, and now as an entrepreneur. And so uh, I'm a huge believer in the ability of entrepreneurship to unlock human potential and to create things of, of value and of beauty. And so I'm in a place where I'd like to to take that and, and enable others. Still involved with companies and still growing companies, but I'm involved with organizations like the Think Tank. Where we're trying to create a, a council that sits at the intersection between technology and and issues of public policy. Um, I'm teaching up at West Point now, and part of what I do is talk to cadets about the linkages between innovation, entrepreneurship, the law, public policy, and, and social good. And so, um, I'm very fortunate. My my various interests, also known as professional ADD, you know, have now put me in a place where I can kind of tap into all those things in in various fashions. So I feel very lucky. We're a country of diversity, and all that entails. We're a country of immigrants. We're a country that people like myself who came here. You know, my grandma sewed my clothes up through eighth grade, right? I had a blue coat that came from Goodwill that I didn't even realize was a girl's coat until many years later. <laughs> and this country gives an opportunity for someone like me to go on and, and serve in uniform and then go to go to a place like Georgetown Law School and then continue to serve again. And then when I decided that I wanted to continue service as an entrepreneur to, to start and grow businesses, that's amazing, right? That this country provides so many opportunities and allows all the different people that come from all different walks of life and places around the world to come. I, I, I still remember this quote, and I'm, I'm struggling to remember who I should attribute it to. Oh, I know who to attribute it to. It's President Reagan. You know, he talks about how if you go to France, you can live there for your life, but you won't really be a Frenchman, right? Or if you go to, you know, Great Britain, you really won't be, you know, a Britishman. But anybody can become an American. You've been listening to France Ong, and this is a part of our Ditch Digger CEO series with Gary Rabine. And my goodness, there's just so much here. It's almost like we all want to know so much more about his life and his story, and not just the entrepreneurship part, which is remarkable. I mean, talk about risk-taking. To him, oh, this isn't risk-taking. I mean, been in Afghanistan, fought. It was in Bosnia right after the breakup. That's risk-taking, folks, and you're risking your life, not your capital. But so much to be learned from so many immigrants across this country. And it's so true, Reagan's words, about just anyone 
being able to become American. And it's the beauty of our nation. It's our comparative advantage against all other nations in the end, is that anyone can become an American. Just do it. Take that oath. Get to work. France Hong's story, our Ditch Digger CEO stories, here on Our American Story. our American stories and we tell stories about everything here on this show and there are historical stories and fun stories and your stories and well sometimes we tell some tough stories we do our our eulogies when people have passed and we've done prison stories and this one well it's about the homeless and it's a very serious social crisis in our country and the stories of the homeless mostly go on uh, mostly go ignored or unreported and that is until now. Mark Horvath has experienced the highs and lows of the American dream, from a successful career in television to barely surviving homeless and addicted on Hollywood Boulevard in Los Angeles. But he found his voice again when he founded Invisible People, a website that chronicles the lives of homeless people around this country. He hit the streets armed with a digital camera and a smartphone to talk to homeless people about their own experiences. And today, he's the online voice of his cause, bringing their stories to millions on Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. Today, Mark is hearing Marissa's story. Marissa and her four children live in the Union Rescue Mission, a largely homeless shelter in the Skid Row area of downtown L.A. Last night, 245 homeless children slept at the Union Rescue Mission and that's just one shelter. Here's Mark. Marissa, we're in Los Angeles. You're in a homeless shelter. Tell me about it. Um, well, the homeless shelter I'm in is pretty nice um, due to the fact that you have your own privacy, you're safe with your kids because you have people around you watching over your safety. Um, they're really helpful. Everybody here is pretty nice. Um, coming from a person who's been homeless before, I, how do I say it? It's more like a blessing finding a place like this because when you've been homeless before, you've either been couch surfing or you've been sleeping on the streets. And then now that I've been homeless for the first time with kids, it. I don't know, I feel blessed because I don't have my kids on the street while I'm homeless. I have a roof over my head and I get to feed them because they give us food to feed them every time. I don't have to worry about whether I have money for food or not. Um, so it's pretty good. It's got to be tough raising kids homeless. It is. I have four. So, <laughs> yeah, it's pretty tough. 
Now, where would you be if it wasn't for a Union Rescue Mission? Honestly, I don't know where I would be. Um, at the moment, I feel like if I wasn't at the rescue mission, I probably wouldn't even have my kids with me, honestly. Yeah. Yeah. Now, where were you before? Um, I was couch surfing and in motels back to back. Uh, how long were you doing that? Um, until I ran out of money and my car ended up getting repossessed. So, but how long were you in hotels and couch surfing? About a month. Yeah. Now, you told me that you uh, were raised in foster care. Yes. And you were homeless before. Right. Tell me about that. Um, so, at the age 13, I was going through a lot. Um, my mom would physically abuse me, and then at the age of 13, I found out my stepdad wasn't really my dad. So I had to go through a sexual abuse and I would get raped for a few years until the age of 15 when I found out I had a big sister who lived with her dad. And um, when I found that out, I told her what was going on. The police interfered and then they took me away from my mom and that's how I ended up into foster care. When I got into foster care at the age of 15, um, I started going into different foster homes due to either my foster parents weren't really caring about me, all they wanted was the money, or it's either because I would get into fights at school because of, I had so much going on, like I wouldn't, I wasn't stable. When then in high school, when I became a senior, I ended up going to seven different high schools until one day I had a really good counselor. And um, he, that counselor would always help me with stuff. And he told me one day, um, Maritza, I know you have a lot in you. Like, I know you could do it. You need to stop filling your classes. You need to stop um, ditching from school and all that stuff. I don't know where it clicked that I had to do good. So he helped me get two extra classes in school. So in school, I would go in at 6 in the morning to my first class in high school. And then I'd come out of high school at 4 o'clock from a different class just to make up my credits. And thank God he pushed me because I ended up graduating from high school. Um, when I graduated from high school, I didn't know, but um, I, had, I, w I had found out that I was pregnant with my first son. When I found out I was pregnant with my first son, I told my foster parents at the moment. And unfortunately, they weren't licensed for kids or they would have had me and my son there. So since then, I ended up homeless for the first time. When I was homeless for the first time pregnant, I had nowhere to go. Um, I was couch surfing. I ended up finding this place called Sarah's House and they took me in. Um, when they took me in, once you had the baby, you have to, you have three months to find out where to go or what to do. So I ended up like working and stuff and just trying to get it together. So they gave you 90 days. Yeah. To go from zero to self-sufficiency. Yeah. How do you do that in 90 days? Honestly, I don't even know how to do it. At two weeks after having my baby, I just started working. Yeah, I went back to work and um, I just started like trying to put stuff together. I started renting a room for like 300 until the landlord thought it wasn't enough. So then I had to move out there. So then I went to move in with my son's dad for a little bit. 
Ended up pregnant again. That didn't work out. So yeah. I ended up homeless again. Yeah. Yes, three jobs. Oh, you're working. currently working three jobs? Yes, DoorDash. I work for David and Margaret Family Youth Services in the cafeteria and then the gas station at 76. So currently, right now, you have three jobs? I have, yeah. yeah. Are they put obviously part-time? Yes, yes. So. Still not enough, but it's something. Well, you're hustling. Yeah, I'm trying to. I have a car, so I have to, I have to pay a lot of stuff out for them. Yeah. And that little little voice over there, that was Andy. <laughs> yeah, Mr. Andy, he's always helping people out. If it wasn't for him, I don't know where I would be at. Like, seriously. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, when I came homeless again this year, um, I had nowhere to go. Like, um, my coworker reached out to me and introduced me to Andy. I called Andy and I told him, like, Hey, I'm stuck at a motel. My car got repoed. I have nowhere to go. Like, do you have anywhere I can go? And he was like, yeah, um, that's not a problem. He's like, just tell me where you are. We'll come pick you up. He came. He picked me up in his big truck. And then um, I explained to him, like, I'm not trying to go to wherever we're going by myself. Like, I would like my kids with me. My kids are with their dad, and I don't know how I'm gonna get them. He automatically said, where are your kids at? I told him they're in Lancaster. He's like, don't worry about it. Just give me the address. We'll go pick them up right away. We literally went all the way to Lancaster, pick up the kids. We picked up the boys, and then we were all in his truck. Like, my kids were excited riding in his truck. Um, my son just kept, <laughs> poor Andy, his ear was so tired. My boys were like talking to him nonstop. Um, he got them Jack in the Box because they were hungry. Like they were really, really hungry. And um, they started asking Andy questions like, do you ride bikes? Um, they just- You were, just rode 400 miles. Just to get him. Yeah. Yeah. And um, yeah, they were just talking his ear off. He was conversating with them back. I think I dozed off for a minute. Yeah. I did, right? <laughs> and then I think my own snoring like woke me up and then I woke up <laughs> and then he's like, mommy, did you get enough rest? I said, yes, thank you. And they were still talking. Well, homelessness is so stressful when you finally get in a place where you feel secure, you sleep. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, you because know, you don't get much sleep when you're stressed. Right. So. Yeah. Well, thanks for adding those stories in. Yeah, huh? Yeah. Now my kids love Andy. What's your future like? Um, honestly, in my future, I just want to see myself in a permanent house, a stable job, and going back to school for my last semester. I have one semester left to get my AA in criminal justice. So I hope that in my future I have accomplished those three things yeah. with my kids. If you had three wishes, what would they be? Mm, just, I would convert into one wish and just basically do the best I can for my kids, provide them what they need for, for the rest of their life. Even if they're old or whatever, just provide them with a place, a stable place, um, money coming in from a job, from my job, and that's pretty much it, the well-being of them. Well, thank you very much for talking to me. You're welcome. And again, that was Mark Horavath, and he was talking to Marissa, and she has four children and lives in Union Rescue Mission, and that's a large homeless shelter 
in the Skid Row section of Los Angeles. And what a voice, and we're going to hear more of these uh, because, my goodness, we should. An abusive mom as a teenager. Next, she's in foster care, and, well, we all know what that can be like. There are some good foster parents, but, boy, there are some bad ones. As she said, they were just in it for the money, the ones she had. And then there were fights, seven different high schools, and what a unique voice. And thanks to Mark Horvath for doing this. Invisible People is a 501c3 nonprofit dedicated to educating the public about homelessness through innovative storytelling, news, and advocacy. For more, search Invisible People on YouTube or go to their website at invisiblepeople.tv. Marissa's story, so many homeless people's story, and Mark Horvath's story here on Our American Stories. Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we chat with authors of all sorts, and well, all kinds of books here too. And today, we're joined by Sam Walker, the founding editor of the Wall Street Journal's sports section, and the author of The Captain Class, the hidden force that creates the world's greatest teams. And Sam, look, there's no better way to start a bar fight than to pick the greatest teams in the world. I mean, that's really hard. And also, you could have a bar fight Deciding what's a sport, what's a team. Talk about both of those things. And was it hard or was it easy? Because something's telling me it's pretty hard. I thought it would be easy. You know, I had those arguments at the bar and, you know, they always ended in just someone storming out because it was impossible to answer. And what I realized was that there's really no set criteria for how we define greatness. And no one had really done a rigorous study or tried to actually nail it down. So that was the, one of the toughest things I I had to do at the beginning it was define greatness. And in the end, what I decided was that we have to be a little more specific about what a team is. A team has to have a certain number of people. It can't be two people. That's more of a partnership. I finally decided that five, five people was really the point at which group contributions and group chemistry was more important than individual performance. So basketball was really the smallest sport that I studied. And I had another set of questions, which was, how do you define greatness? And, you know, for me, one of the problems is when people talk about great teams, there's no real set period of time that we apply to it. A lot of people talk about teams that were great in one season or had an incredible undefeated season. But what I really wanted to study, what I realized was important, is teams that had sustained their dominance for a long time. Because I think any team can get lucky. They can win a championship in one season or two seasons. But Really, to rule out luck completely and to talk about culture and chemistry, then you really had to set the bar at four years. And let's talk about some competing theories that are out there, because the name of your book is The Captain Class. Some people think it's the coaches. Some people think it's the management. Some people think it's that superstar player or the team of players. What led you to this categorization and your choice to study the captains? I was completely shocked. I I've had all of the same assumptions that I think everyone does. When I finally identified these teams, and that took years and years of work. I mean, I, I went through 25,000 teams, the entire history of sports since the 1880s, all over the world, and I got down to 17 of them. And, you know, the first thing I looked at was talent, right? I thought talent would be the thing. And, you know, but I quickly realized that some of these teams, you know, they all were talented, but some of them had 
talent that was clearly average or even mediocre in some cases. So it wasn't that. The second thing I thought was coaching. You know, it's got to be coaching. But to my great surprise, there wasn't a pattern there. I'm not saying coaching isn't important, but some of these teams had more than one coach. You know, they changed coaches. Or, you know, some of them didn't even have coaches or had coaches who really didn't take an active role. And in fact, only one of them had a coach who was considered a great coach when their run of dominance began. So that wasn't the magic bullet I was looking for. I also looked at things like tactics. You know, I thought maybe they just had incredible, brilliant strategies that stood out above the rest. But again, you know, only a handful of them could say that. So that wasn't a pattern either. It didn't have anything to do with organization or even management at the higher levels. The only thing that they all had in common, and it was slap your forehead obvious. I mean, it was just so plain as day when I looked at it, was that these runs of greatness, these long streaks of dominance, they always corresponded almost precisely to the arrival and departure of one player. And that player, in every single case, was the leader of the team or the captain. And let's take a deep dive into your captain theory with the first captain I want to talk about and this great American sports franchise called the Boston Celtics. Bill Russell, who was he? Bill Russell is, in my mind, the greatest team leader in sports history. And what that team accomplished, I've never seen anything the likes of it. I mean, they won 11 NBA championships in 13 seasons. And people forget that. We talk about the the Bulls, Michael Jordan, and the, the Warriors today, and LeBron James. You know, but what we don't see is that incredible consistency. The whole notion of a team that has won 10 NBA titles and yet is still hungry to win an 11th is kind of incredible. And they pulled it off year after year. And now, again, that streak began and ended with Bill Russell. It started his rookie season when they won their first championship. And the Celtics had never won a title before, ever. And the year he retired was the last championship of the streak. And the, the following season, they, they didn't even make it to 500 and didn't make the playoffs. It took many more years for them to return to glory. So this was completely bracketed by Bill Russell. And I want to make the point very clearly that I'm not saying that all you need is a great captain to have a great team. I mean, you need a lot of things. A lot of things have to work. But to me, the captain is really like the verb in a sentence. You know, the adjectives, the nouns. You know, the punctuation, all these other things might be more interesting, more memorable, but without the verb, it's not a sentence. It doesn't work together. And that's kind of the role these captains played in bringing these elements together. And Russell was such a great example because Russell was absolutely on the court completely strange. He was a big man who did not score, which was very unusual for the day. And, you know, back then, defenders weren't supposed to leave their feet, you know, but he would fly through the air and block shots and, he played this ferocious brand of defense. It was completely relentless. You know, no one had ever seen anything like that, and his numbers were, were not startling, so people didn't understand it. And you know, off the court, too, he was strange. I mean, he didn't care about endorsements. He didn't sign autographs. He was very prickly with the press and, and didn't really seem to care much about the fans or being a role model or anything that we associate with, with leadership. You know, in fact, he, he turned down the Hall of Fame you know, when he was inducted. He said he just didn't want any part of it. People thought he was an oddball, but really what they didn't understand was that all he cared about was the collective accomplishments of the team and all his effort, everything went inside that team. And inside the team, his teammates loved him, you know, and everything about him, they understood him completely and they would do anything for him. And 
on the court, you know, he understood that, you know, what the team didn't need was someone pouring in uh, baskets and getting in the highlight reel. They needed someone who would do all the unglamorous grunt work, every dirty job that needed to be done in order to help the team win. And that was his role. So he's just the epitome of great leadership. And he was misunderstood in his time. And, you know, I think only today we're really starting to understand the full dimensions of what he brought to that team. And anyone who was around during that day knows who Bill Russell was. By the way, he played at the University of San Francisco and took them straight to a college championship as well. When we come back, more with Sam Walker, author of The Captain Class. This is Our American Story. Our American Stories, and we're back with Sam Walker, the author of The Captain Class, the hidden force that creates the world's greatest teams. We were just talking about Bill Russell of the Boston Celtics, and Sam, you began the book with the words of this legendary captain, quote, my ego demands for myself the success of my team. Yeah, no, I love that. And it's such a great encapsulation of what you need to be if you want to be a great leader and, uh, you know, all the different ways that you need to think about your role and how much you need to, how hard you need to work and how much of yourself you need to just forget about. You you really need to kind of give yourself over completely to to the goals of of the group. And that's something that we're not trained to do. Business schools aren't teaching people to do that. Selflessness and self-sacrifice aren't generally words people use for most CEOs in America. We can, we can say that safely, Sam. Talk about the Coleman play, because one of the things about Bill Russell, and we're going to learn this more about some of these other captains, is this word called desire. And my goodness, anybody who played around Bill Russell understood what that word meant. So this is one of my favorite stories because I think it it shows one of the characteristics that we all kind of know is important, but that we don't really understand why it's important. And that is relentlessness. And Bill Russell was relentless. I mean, to an extreme, he would get sick before every game that he played even meaningless games. He would throw up in the locker room. And in fact, if he didn't throw up, his teammates would say, Russ, you go throw up. Like, what's wrong with you? Uh, because he he cared so much. But the Coleman play was a perfect example of why this matters. Now, this happened in in his rookie season, and they made it to the NBA Finals in a Game 7 against the St. Louis Hawks. And this was one of the first Game 7s, and it was just a huge event with incredible pressure, and Russell was a rookie. Now, late in the game, uh, Boston had a one-point lead. It was about a minute left. And Boston got a rebound, and Russell charged down the court, and he tried to dunk the ball. Missed up his timing, he missed. And St. Louis got the rebound. And now St. Louis, a forward named Jack Coleman, had been sort of hanging back behind the play. And they quickly inbounded the ball to him at, at midcourt. Now he's at midcourt with the ball and a running start. Now Russell, who had missed that dunk, where was he? He was underneath his own basket, off the court, on the other side. 
he was about 96 feet from the basket and Coleman was probably about 45 feet with a running start. But when Coleman came to the rim and to make a layup, now this is late in the game. They would have taken a lead. It might have been the end. This blur appeared behind him and swatted the ball away, and it was Russell. And he had somehow covered twice the distance that Coleman had in the same amount of time. I mean, nobody on uh, in that arena would have thought he had a chance, and he certainly must not have even known himself. But just that raw desire that he demonstrated over and over again in competition – the thing about it is that was consistent for him. And what we don't understand is that studies have shown that relentlessness is highly contagious. You know, if a group of people that's doing something together thinks that one person in that group is giving 100% effort, a real maximum effort, all of them will raise their own performance. If you have someone in your midst like that who is relentless and committed to playing at all times at 100%, they're going to be serious marginal gains that you will you will see in your teamwork. And that's just not something we can quantify. So it's not something that we teach, but I think it's about time we started. We've all been around people who have that kind of drive and focus and what it does to our game. We raise our game. We raise the bar. And when those people aren't present, we don't even know where the bar is. Right, exactly. Yeah, no, it's funny because there are some emotions that are contagious inside a group and relentlessness is contagious always in a good way. Toughness is always contagious in a good way. If you show toughness and perseverance, others will too. And another one is emotional control, which is something all these leaders had. They had the ability to overcome really difficult personal circumstances and not just compete well, but compete at a higher level than ever. And Tom Brady of the Patriots is a great example of this. You know, a couple of seasons ago after this whole deflate gate situation, you know, he served a suspension, but he came back and played one of his greatest seasons. But even after they won the Super Bowl and this incredible comeback against the Atlanta Falcons, we find out that his mother had been undergoing chemotherapy, you know, and had been diagnosed with cancer that season. So he was going through that and he never said a word about it. No one knew about it because he had the control to put that away and to play as hard as he could when he was playing and deal with it separately. And no doubt. And we're going to get to Brady in a little bit because it's such a fascinating chapter in your book. But let's talk about one more basketball player because I don't think he gets the credit he deserves. Tim Duncan of the San Antonio Spurs. Talk about Timmy Duncan. Who is he? He is a very unusual guy. He uh, was a great swimmer. I mean, really had uh, incredible talent, could have maybe even been an Olympic uh, swimmer. But you know, the hurricane came in and destroyed the local pool. And at about the same time, his mother passed away. And, you know, he had a, these hard knocks. And, you know, he started picking up basketball and was very lightly recruited. In fact, Wake Forest was one of the only schools that really took him seriously. And he was a very skinny kid and just hadn't grown into his body. But, you know, he, he got there and really matured and became a really hot NBA prospect. But, you know, I don't think anyone really thought that, that he was going to become the, the star that he was or that he would develop his skills the way he did. But the thing that's fascinating about Tim, there's two things I think there's so much about him that is instructive for leaders. But I think the, the most important thing really is the way he played. Now, he had the talent to dominate the NBA in terms of scoring, you know, or any of the famous, gaudiest statistics. But if you look at his totals, it's really amazing. Some, some years he was very prolific scorer. Some years it was not. His blocks and rebounds and other things were, were off the charts. He would change his position on the court and play different positions depending on the makeup of the team. It just showed that he had the same quality that 
Russell had, which is that he he didn't care what his numbers were or what you thought of him or whether he got on the cover of a magazine. He only cared about the team winning, and he would do whatever grunt work needed to be done, and he would change his role to fit. But the thing about Tim Duncan that really everyone should study is the way he communicates. I was completely surprised when I looked at these captains because the first thing I thought the first way that you motivate a team is is with a speech. You give a big speech, right? You motivate them with words. And none of these captains gave speeches. I mean, they did not like to do it. Some of them purposely avoided it. And I did not understand this. I didn't understand how they communicated effectively with their teammates. I, I went right to Duncan. Because if you've ever watched Tim Duncan give an interview, you know that he is not a charismatic guy. I mean, he sounds like he's getting a colonoscopy when he's answering questions. He just has no emotion. He's, he's monosyllabic, right? He doesn't come across as a charismatic person. So how does he communicate? Well, he talks a lot, but it's a different sort of communication. He's always working the room, talking individually to one person, one-on-one, with incredible intensity. He stares, uses his eye contact and gestures and touch to communicate very intensely with people. And he listens as much as he talks. He doesn't lecture, he listens. And he has these interactions all the time and he has them in the moment, especially when someone has done something wrong or needs uh, encouragement. That's when he springs into action. And what I realized that the Spurs talk more than any team I've ever seen. I mean, they're always talking on the floor, on the bench, constant communication. And this creates an atmosphere where everyone feels like they can contribute, they feel heard. And they also feel like they have to account for themselves. And all the problems that team had were addressed in the moment. Nothing ever festered. This talkative style that they had allowed them to address problems in the moment to move past them. And that's why they were so good for so long. That's why they made the playoffs in 19 consecutive seasons with an incredible revolving cast of players and won five championships and had the greatest long-term winning percentage in NBA history. It was because that that whole climate that Duncan created, you know, allowed them to slot new people in and got them uh, talking and solving problems. So even though they didn't always have the best talent or certainly not the most money, they were the most dominant team of, of their era in the NBA. And we're talking to Sam Walker, author of The Captain Class. And what a terrific series of stats for Tim Duncan, wherever you might put him in the pantheon of greats. 19 consecutive playoffs, five championships, and the best winning percentage in National Basketball Association history. And by the way, if you like what we do here on Our American Story, speaking of, well, at least trying to raise the bar and lead the dialogue, maybe be the captain of the class in storytelling, go to ouramericannetwork.org and sign up for our free newsletter. Five best stories each week, you'll get them. Also, please send the link to a friend. If you like what you're hearing, Please help us succeed in the market and in the marketplace of ideas and stories. We're working hard to get this out to the American people. There's a lot of screaming. There's a lot of yelling. There's a lot of hate. This show is always about, well, interesting, compelling, and good things. When we come back, Sam Walker, author of The Captain Class, here on Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories, and we continue our conversation with Sam Walker, author of The Captain Class. And for anybody out there who's listening, leading anything, and anyone who's a sports fan, but even if you're not, what a great discussion. We were just talking about Tim Duncan, probably the highest paid person to ever have written an academic psychology paper. Because in college, Sam, he co-authored one titled Blowhard Snobs and Narcissists, Interpersonal Reactions to Excessive Egotism. In the opening paragraph is the line, quote, simply put, we don't like egotistical people. So even as an undergrad, Tim Duncan got it. It just shows you the level of intelligence and emotional intelligence that these great leaders had. I mean, I don't know. I think I think that my sense with Duncan, I've never spoken to him about this. I know he's very proud of the paper, but I think that really was who he was and that that research that he did really explained to him that who he was as a leader, he didn't look like a leader that you would you would pick out of a crowd. I mean, his teammates always said if he walked into practice, he would never imagine that he was the leader of the team because he didn't, he wasn't the loudest voice in the room. He wasn't a huge presence, a, a charismatic person who barked out orders. He didn't do any of the things leaders are supposed to do. What I found in my book and what I hope is inspiring in it to people is that, you know, you may not think that you have leadership characteristics. You may think that there are things that you just aren't good at, but Really, the, the truth is that all of the things that these leaders did were really about behavior and the choices that they made in the team context every day. And behavior can be modeled and leadership can be, can be uh, improved. Choices can be better. And when you start to understand what leadership really involves and you start to separate out the myths, then um, you can see why someone like Tim Duncan may not be the guy on posters in every kid's bedroom, but he is by far the winningest and most effective leader of his generation. You know, his coach once said that Duncan didn't have an ounce of MTV in him. He even (laughs) agreed to be paid less than market value. Why did he do that? What was he thinking? I mean, his agent must have went, Timmy, what are you talking about? You want the maximum so I can get the maximum commission. What are you doing? You know, Tom Brady did the same thing with the Patriots. I mean, he would restructure his contract every year so that they could have more salary cap room to sign other players. I mean, it's that's what you do. He's made more money, I'm sure, than he ever imagined he would make in his life, and, and as most of these players have. And it's not an affectation. I mean, he cared about the team and the team's result. That's where all his satisfaction came from, and it came much more than his satisfaction from having – more money in the bank or having, you know, yet another supercar in his garage. I mean, that stuff didn't matter. And he's an incredible person. And, you know, I have so much respect for him. And I, I do think that there's a lot of appreciation for him, but he's often left out of the conversation when people talk about the greatest players of all time. And I just don't understand it. I don't understand this hall of fame mentality where, you know, we separate out an individual from his teammates and say, this person deserves special praise. I don't understand how any, I think they knew that, that their, whatever they, their accomplishments were, were all dependent on other people and that you can't really divide a team into its important parts and its less important parts. It's really all one unit. Indeed. I want to quote from the book because it's such a good quote and it's something we all know and experience in any workplace. Quote, one of the great paradoxes of management is that the people who pursue leadership positions most ardently are often the wrong people for the job. You then cited a study of superstar CEOs and how, as they lift themselves up, they often lower others in the process. 
Tim Duncan and so many members of your captain class, they did the exact opposite. Talk about that. Well, my favorite example of this is a woman named Carla Overbeck. And I doubt that you immediately remember that name. She was the captain of that great 1999 U.S. women's soccer team that won the World Cup and you know, really dominated that sport for about five, six years. Just one of the best soccer teams of all time. And you remember Mia Hamm and Julie Foudy and Brandi Chastain, all the big stars of that team. But there's a reason you don't know Carla Overbeck, and it's because she did not care. She did not want you to know who she was. She had no interest in the spotlight whatsoever, any personal accolades. And she was not the best player on the team. She was a central defender, and you know, she never did anything flashy. She never scored. She you know, would, would pass the ball off the minute she got it to one of her teammates, and she, you know, she just played with this relentless pace. But what was amazing about her is that I think she understood what leadership is really about, and it's really about service. She was incredible with this because she did things I'd never seen before. When this team would go on a long road trip to Japan or Norway, they would get to their hotel and they'd be exhausted and they'd get a knock on the door and they'd open it up and it was Carla Overbeck who was carrying their bags from the bus to their rooms for them. Now, this is the captain of the team doing this. I asked one of her former coaches about this. I said, how is this leadership? How does this help her be a leader? And he said, you know, she knew exactly what she was doing. Because Carla Overbeck would do these things on behalf of her teammates, and they understood that to her, all she cared about was the collective of the team. She did not care about herself. She would do anything for them. And this gave her a certain amount of currency, like a, a bank account, that she could spend when she needed to. And she would spend it on the field because the minute that someone messed up or was not focused, she would be all over them or encouraging them when they did something great. And it meant something. Everyone understood who she was and what she was all about, and it had great power when she did it in competition. It made the team better. Let's talk about football now, and, and two teams in particular. First, the 1970s Pittsburgh Steeler teams. Who is Jack Lambert, and why did you include him in this book? Most folks think of Terry Bradshaw when they think of that powerhouse Steeler team. Why was Jack Lambert the guy you focused on? But really the heart and soul of that team was his defense. I mean, it was an extraordinary, historically great defense. And that was really the uh, the unit that drove that team forward. And just look at the moment that Jack Lambert showed up. I mean, the Steelers had never won a Super Bowl before he got there. And, uh, you know, never. And, and now they're, you know, they've won more, I think, than any other NFL team. And, you know, they are uh, they are really a creation of Lambert's tenacious style and his aggressive play and his relentlessness. Jack Lambert was a player who had an understanding of something that all these these elite captains knew to some extent, but I think he was probably the best example of it. They understood the power of nonverbal communication, of just gestures. They understood that there were moments where they needed to do something in full view of their teammates that would show their level of commitment and passion because that would transfer it to them and allow them to play harder. And Jack Lambert was famous, of course, for, uh, you know, he lost a couple teeth in high school playing pickup basketball and he uh, had a prosthetic denture that he wore in public, but he would take it off on the field so that he had a toothless, you know, mouth and he, and he would scare people. So that was part of it. But my favorite Jack Lambert story that I think shows you uh, the genius of his leadership was that they were playing a, a game, I believe, in 1976, and they had won the Super Bowl, but they started one and four. 
people had written them off, like it's over for the Steelers. And they had to win this game. They had to beat the Bengals. And he wound up playing a, probably the finest game of his career in terms of the number of tackles. He recovered fumbles. He basically accounted for most of his team's points single-handedly. So it was an incredible game. But now in the middle of this game, he had uh, came into the game, he had a cut on his hand, and he bandaged it up, and you know he went out there. And, of course, the bandages failed, and the blood starts spurting out. It was all over his uniform and his pants. I mean, it was a mess. I tracked down one of the trainers, and I asked him, why didn't you, know, you just rewrap that bandage when he came off the field or change his uniform at halftime or something? And he said... You don't understand. He's like, Jack Lambert loved having blood on his uniform. I mean, he understood how powerful that message was and how uh, how much harder it made his teammates play and how much it intimidated his opponents. And uh, he, he did that on purpose. And Jack Lambert did all kinds of things that might seem crazy or unhinged. But when you listen to him talk about it, I mean, he always says, look, these were calculated acts. These were things that I did. Uh, you know, on purpose because I understood the power that they would have and I understood the effect they would have on the team. And, you know, that's one of the reasons that that team was so good and so consistently great uh, and won four Super Bowls in six years, which no team has ever done. And what great storytelling. And when we come back, the final segment with Sam Walker, more stories to come. Author of The Captain Class, this is Our American Stories. back with our final segment of our conversation with Sam Walker, the founding editor of the Wall Street Journal sports section and author of The Captain Class, the hidden force that creates the world's greatest teams. It's a terrific read. Go to Amazon.com and order it. You won't be disappointed. I had to read something to you, Sam, from quarterback John Elway. Of course, he played at Denver. And this was him talking about Jack Lambert. And by the way, he was a rookie. And here's what he wrote. Lambert had no teeth. He was slobbering all over himself, and I'm thinking, you can have your money back. Just get me out of here. Let me go be an accountant. I can't tell you how badly I wanted out of there. And so you were talking about all of this nonverbal communication. My goodness, it didn't just fire up his team. It scared the heck out of the opponents. Talk about courage and how captains develop it. You know, a lot of it comes from emotional control. And, you know, we don't think of Jack Lambert as being someone who was uh, emotionally controlled. But like all of these great athletes, you know, he was not someone who got in trouble off the field. I mean, he was not someone who got in a lot of brawls. And none of these captains, they were usually very quiet. Off the field, Jack Lambert was really kind of an introverted, private person. I mean, he was a big reader. And, you know, on road trips, he would he would often just sit in his room reading a book. I mean, he wasn't an outsized character. That aggression that he had on the field didn't translate to the rest of his life. And that was something I saw with all of these athletes. And, you know, I think it's a way of redefining courage because, you know, he poured everything into football and, and all of his aggression, all of his passion, everything. You know, he would, he would put it all out on the field. And, you know, when he wasn't there, he had this incredible ability to, to shut it off and to... 
kind of return to normal and, and to, to, to be a quieter person. And, you know, that's a form of courage that we don't really understand. It's the ability to control your emotions. You know, being able to do that, you know, it's not courage in the sense of, of you know, running up the hill in a, in, a, in a rain of bullets in some big military battle, but it's a different sort of courage that I think is very contagious because I think people see you dealing with your emotions that way, being able to control them, being able to target them toward objectives. And I think uh, it gives everyone a better understanding of, of how to operate in a team environment and, and what courage really is. Let's talk about Tom Brady at the University of Michigan, where he played as a collegian. No one could have imagined what would have been in store for him as an NFL player. He was a sixth-round draft pick and had trouble keeping his starting job in college. No, he lost it. I mean, he lost it. To Drew Henson, who was, you know, uh, supposed to be the next great, you know, quarterback, the second coming of, you know, Joe Montana. Yeah, no, he went through a lot. And, you know, um, the fact that he even got on the field was a fluke because he only got to play because of a serious injury to Drew Bledsoe. And it really shows you, you know, that, that it's very easy sometimes to not look inside someone. I mean, I think he had great talent, physical talent, and, you know, we'd seen many flashes of that at Michigan, but... What was really lurking inside him was incredible elite leadership ability and, you know, also great tactical mind and all those things that, you know, I think scouts too often dismiss. Brady was tough because, you know, Brady's accomplishments, I know everyone loves to talk about Brady and the greatness of the Patriots, but, you know, until I believe this season when they made another Super Bowl and and won eight, eight straight AFC championship games, you know, their record was very similar to the 49ers in that long stretch where they were very dominant. So same number of Super Bowls, roughly the same winning percentage. So I had a very hard time saying that either one of those teams was unique. So initially, for the hardcover, I didn't put the Patriots in. But later on, I, after they made that Super Bowl, I decided to put them in because I thought their record had clearly outpaced the 49ers. But the thing about Brady that stands out to me the most beyond his leadership qualities is his relationship with his coach. And that is something that is fascinating to me. And I said that coaches weren't the, the important factor, the crucial factor, and I don't think they are. But what's really important in these great teams with coaches is that they have a partnership with their captain. And I saw this over and over again. It wasn't a boss-employee kind of relationship. Bill Belichick and Tom Brady had this relationship that was unusual. It was like the relationship Tim Duncan had with Greg Popovich, too. It was very affectionate and there's a lot of, of love between them, but they knew how to fight and they would fight all the time. They would come into conflict about tactics. It was never personal. It was always about how the team was playing. You know, and Belichick would, would go to team meetings and rip Brady in front of everyone for mistakes that he made. And Brady would take it and it would tell everyone that no one's above the team. But, you know, if Tom Brady didn't like the Super Bowl playbook that he was given, he would tell him to rip it up and start over. So, that partnership, I think, was really underrated. And if you remember, that first season Tom Brady came, he was a six-round draft pick no one thought was uh, anything. And Bill Belichick was a guy who got fired at Cleveland that no one thought had the chops to be a head coach. And together, they became two of the legends of football. But I don't think you can separate them. I don't think it was something they could have achieved individually. I think that partnership and their ability to work together was so important. And I think the message for coaches and people, managers and people who are trying to assemble teams with this kind of leadership model is that 
you got to pick someone to lead that team that you can really partner with and that you respect and that you can uh, really treat as a peer. I think that's true. And there was a balance of power you wrote about and a mutual respect and that fighting wasn't a bad thing. And you equate the great captains and coaches to married couples. I was lucky to see a great marriage. My mom and dad would fight like cats and dogs and it was over right after the fight. And then I'd see them loving each other. And then when they disagreed, they'd go at it. And it was respect for each other. And they taught me how to fight which is a wonderful thing. People who can disagree and then carry on, you're giving them the greatest gift in the world. It's true. It's so underrated. And it's funny because especially in sports, there's this weird sense that conflict is bad. You know, there, there's, there are certain players, and the, and the thing about these captains was they were not easy to manage. I mean, they would push back on anything they didn't think was in the best interest of the team, whether it was something big or small. They would push back against the coaches, but they would push back against their teammates as well. They were willing to stand apart. And you talk about courage, and you know that's an underrated form of courage. It's the ability to just dissent from the group. And science has actually shown that, that there is a, an element of physical discomfort that comes with standing apart. So it's something that's not easy to do. And yet it's so crucial. You know, all the the studies that have been done of team performance show that teams that really work together in in close ways, as they do in sports, a certain level of conflict is essential. But there's a different kind of conflict. There's two kinds, really. There's a, a kind of conflict they call task conflict, which is really about an argument about process, about how the team is doing something or how they should do something. And there's another form of conflict, which is personal conflict. This is when the source of the conflict is really just, I don't like you. And there's a real difference. Now, all these captains, whenever they introduce conflict in their teams, they made a huge point to make clear that it wasn't personal. They never singled out individuals. They never blamed any one person. It was always about the collective, and it was always about the task and the process. And it's a huge difference. It's so easy to mistake those two things and look at someone who is – creating conflict uh, as a bad thing when you're not really necessarily looking at why they're doing it or how they're doing it. And that was one of the real secrets I feel like I uncovered, something I had no idea about until I really took a hard look at it. Sam, you wrote something fascinating about all of these captains, that they were more like jazz musicians than conductors, and that they freely improvised on and off the court to get the job done. It was one of the things that I had never considered when I think about teams, but there was a famous researcher named Richard Hackman, who was a Harvard psychologist who passed away a few years ago. He spent all of his career embedded with performance teams, teams that do things in real time, whether airplane cockpit crews or emergency room units or even symphony orchestras. And he would watch the way leadership worked. And what he discovered was so exactly parallel to what I found in these teams, which is that the leader's charisma and talent did not matter. It just wasn't a factor. They could have it, they could not have it. It didn't really make a difference. All that mattered, in fact, in terms of leadership inside a group is that every single important function of leadership gets done. That's it. You know, anything that needs to be done in order to help the team from a leadership perspective, as long as someone does it, it doesn't even have to be the leader. It could be somebody else. And on these great teams, what you saw was that these captains had established themselves as the person who would do anything. If there's a burning building that no one else wants to go into, they're going to go into it. And once that's established, then basically everyone on the team, whether a superstar or a bench player, 
understands that they're free to do their jobs and focus on what they need to do. And if they want to contribute to leadership, they can. They can do it the ways they want to. They can do the things that they're good at, whether it's mentorship or you know, being the spark plug or being a sheriff or doing something else to help the team as a group. And you start to see this happening, this beautiful symphony that starts where everyone does what they're good at and everyone pitches in and every single function of leadership gets taken care of. And a great leader will never feel territorial, will never feel unhappy that someone is doing a leadership function because, frankly, it's a hard job. Being a great leader, you know, and sustaining excellence is incredibly taxing and difficult. And anyone who's doing it the right way will be so happy to have help and assistance from others. Well, and this book will help others and assist them, too. We've been talking to Sam Walker, the founding editor of the Wall Street Journal's sports section and author of The Captain Class, The Hidden Force That Creates the World's Greatest Teams. Pick it up on Amazon. I promise you, you will not be disappointed. And Sam, thanks so much for doing this. And by the way, go to ouramericannetwork.org to hear all that we do. Sign up for our free newsletter, Five Best Stories Each Week. They come in audio form and in print form. And again, all you have to do is give us your email address. Go to ouramericannetwork.org. The Captain Class, Sam Walker's latest. This is Our American Stories.